Welcome to Day 2 Cloud, and today we're talking IPv6. There's so much space out there. What is going on in the world of cloud with IPv6? We have a very special guest, Scott Hogue, the CTO of Hexabuild and also the host of IPv6 Buzz to bring us up to speed on what's going on. Ethan, what stuck out to you? Well, I've been listening to the IPv6 Buzz podcast as one of my don't miss shows. And one of the things that came up in a recent episode that we're going to touch on here is just how much address space is out there. So if you're building an app, you can do things like use an address once for one connection and never use it again. And that wasn't wasteful. It's honestly, if you're coming from the IPv4 world, it's a bit mind blowing. And Scott takes us through that concept and, and a lot of other things about how realistically we can adopt IPv6 when we're using public cloud and dependent on a lot of public cloud services, because we all want to be there. The, we want the future to be now, but it isn't 100% now, Ned. <laughs> when I adopted, started adopting the cloud and I got a slash 16, I thought I was rich. <laughs> Imagine what happens when you have a slash 64 to play with. That's the oh, sort yeah. of space we're talking about. So enjoy this conversation with Scott Hogue, CTO of Hexabuild. Well, Scott, welcome to Day 2 Cloud. We're very excited to have you here. The topic of IPv6 comes up occasionally when we're doing various episodes, and we thought, let's bring on an expert, somebody who really knows their stuff. And well, that... That appears to be you. You even have a whole <laughs> podcast about it. Uh, so before I start with the first question, uh, why don't you pitch your podcast in case anybody's really interested in the IPv6 landscape? Sure. Yeah, we've recorded many episodes of our IPv6 Buzz podcast on packetpushers.net for a while now uh, with my co-hosts, Ed Horley and Tom Coffeen. And we often have guests or sometimes we do shows just us, you know, talking about IPv6 and things that are relevant to, you know, many enterprises as they start to consider it, plan for it, deploy it, understand some of the caveats that may not have been in textbooks they read 10 years ago, you know. <laughs> 20 years Scott, ago. If there's one theme I could say about the V6 Buzz podcast as directed at the enterprise folks, it's unlearn whatever you think you know from ipv4 stop trying to carry that forward <laughs> put that bag of bricks down and do it right with v6 yeah i think that's what we like about ipv6 it's it's a way to shed the legacy thinking and think creatively about how we use addresses there's a lot of potential in greenfield or starting from scratch and or or starting from a clean slate and so that's that's what we like. And yeah, and there's a current, you know, state of thinking, a current set of best practices for IPv6 deployment that may not be captured in any text or clearly synthesized in a YouTube video that, that people can watch. So we try and, you know, give them practical information, but then also cover some theory. Yeah, if I'm being honest, most of what I learned about IPv6 happened when I was pursuing my MCSE 2000. Because Microsoft, oh was, they were really on the <laughs> IPv6 bu uh, bus back then. Not the buzz, the bus. And they were riding that bus. And you know, a lot of people don't realize how ready Microsoft was for IPv6 at the time. And then it just completely failed to materialize for them. So that's where I kind of learned about it and then kind of forgot it after I passed the exams. Uh, but listening to your podcast has brought me back up to date a little bit. So what I'm going to ask you to do is take all your episodes and just summarize them in the next five minutes. <laughs> okay. oh, we recorded curious, a though. lot of episodes. We're coming up on uh, like almost 100 episodes here. So we've got a lot more 
we've talked more about IPv6 than we thought we could talk about IPv6. That is a, yeah. you know, it's a big space. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh. So uh, what is the, let, let's just start with the basics. We are now in terms of deployment and adoption, where are we with IPv6? Because it always seems like the IPv4 apocalypse is about to happen, but never quite seems to actually happen. So, so where are we with things? I mean, it's it's one of those things that's been slow and steadily increasing over the last decade. You know, more than a decade ago, depending on where you measured, probably just a few percentage points of IPv6 traffic utilization. Now, you know, uh, in North America or Europe, might be close to a tipping point. We might be close to 50% V4, 50% V6 on the backbone of the internet. Uh, other countries like India and other countries might have even much higher percentages, 60 to 70% IPv6 in some specific countries, where then in those locations, V4 may be in the minority. Uh, and so this has happened slow and steady without many people noticing, or many enterprises have this, have this feeling that, oh, we haven't deployed IPv6 internally, therefore it doesn't matter, or it's a topic we don't need to consider, but it's been slow and steadily increasing usage on the internet. And then what's happened with enterprise networking is we made the internet the corporate backbone <laughs> and we sent people home. And guess what? Now they are using IPv6 on their mobile devices with 4G, 5G services, or they could likely have IPv6 at their homes. And so this has all happened outside of the IT department's purview or, or the enterprise network engineer who's just focused on the internal network or, or rolling out an SD-WAN deployment or even cloud practitioners haven't really thought about, wow, there's more IPv6 on the internet than I previously thought. Well, there's more V6 on the internet, Scott. A lot of it's mobile, driven by mobile, as you mm -hmm. said. You know, if we yes. look at our iPhones and uh, my, my Verizon-driven handsets, got a mm -hmm. V6 stack in there. Mm -hmm. It's a dual stack, though, most of the time, right? Sometimes some, because mobile providers, they also struggle, struggle with a plentiful supply of, you know, IPv4 address space. They often, you know, give your phone a private V4 address that then gets natted a couple of times maybe, and you go through a, a carrier grade NAT or large scale NAT system, or some phone, some mobile providers just don't have even private V4 address space to fulfill all of their subscribers' needs. So they'll run V6 only on your mobile device and then tunnel the V4 traffic across their core network and then again, NAT it out to the internet on the edge. So it could be four and six tunneled or translated. Um, mm -hmm. So if I oversimplify that, Scott, I can say, even though it's super ugly, I still have V4 connectivity in some way or another, even on a, a V6 only device. So if I'm trying to make the case to the executives in my company, the C-suite, that it's time, we really need to go V6. How do I make that case? Because they could just argue back, yeah, but V4 is still working everywhere. Yeah, V4 works, uh, but you have to realize that the V4 traffic will go through two more or more NATs between the client and the server. The client will have at least one, you know, either within the phone or in the service provider's network, there'll be at least one. And then you'll go through at least one or two NATs maybe on the server side. There'll be a front-end load balancer. Maybe there'll be another, you know, app tier load balancer. Maybe there'll be a, another NAT at the 
you know, at the container, you know, software container level. And so the, the V4 traffic will get natted and backhauled through a less optimal path. And we'll be fighting for connection space or connections per second through these other translators because they're, you know, it's, it's, they're stateful where the V6 traffic won't be natted will go directly to, you know, more directly from the client to the server and end up, we see statistics where, you know, mobile connectivity over IPv6 has a slightly lower latency because of, you know, not having to deal with NAT, which perpetuates, you know, uh, updates to TCP and UDP header checksums. So I'm hearing performance and complexity, as in once we get to a V6 only world, mm-hmm. we will have reduced the complexity in our networks. And so, yes. you know, let, let's get on the train and do, do the right thing. It, and it's beyond time to be adding V6 to the mix. Yeah. A V6 provides a globally unique address space that's super plentiful, that doesn't overlap with your on-premises network, your cloud environments, any mergers and acquisitions you may make. And it's a simpler addressing model where you only have several types of prefix lengths. It's not like IPv4 where it's like, oh, can I get away with you know, a slash 28 you know, of, of private V4 address space in this one you know, virtual network in my cloud environment, or can I splurge and use an entire slash 27? <laughs> and then you have, the, you know, 29s and 28s and 27s and 24s. You have all these different prefixes where with V6, it's a lot simpler and it has a simpler operational model as a result of that. And, you know, when you roll out IPv6, a network is never going to outgrow its bounds. You're not addressing for the number of hosts and then giving it scalability or, adding an address and holding one in reserve in case it grows beyond its bounds. No, you just are more likely allocating IPv6 addresses sequentially based on a certain size or certain number of networks and never have to readdress. That sounds pretty good to me. Yeah, I I feel like we've lived in the world of IPv4 scarcity for so long that the idea of wasting an address is just, it's horrific. We, we can't even comprehend like, no, no, no. I have to be very, you know, d- very um, deterministic about how everything gets assigned an address. I don't think some folks realize how plentiful addresses truly are in an IPv6 world. Can you give just like a brief example of how plentiful the addresses would be if you have a, a smaller block allocated? Yeah. Okay. Let, let's say. Let's just a simple example here. IPv6 addresses are 128 bits in length. So we normally you know, use the first 64 bits to represent the network, the last 64 bits represent the interface identifier. You, know, you just split it in the middle, 64 bits is the network number, 64 bits is the node number. If you remember back to IPX and AppleTalk days. So you just split it in half. Okay, so every slash 64 has 18 quintillion possible nodes on it. That's unfathomable. And then, so if you if you took the 32, let's just say 32 bits, you could give, you know, in, in 32, two to the power of 32, roughly 4.3 billion, you could give 4.3 billion organizations, 4.3 billion slash 64s, each with 18 quintillion nodes on them. So everyone on the internet today could get their own internet 
of 4.3 billion slash 64s, each with 18 quintillion possible nodes. Okay, so we're not worried about address space <laughs> if you're no. making that move. That's, no. a, that's a pretty compelling argument for anyone who's struggling with addressing now. Now, I've certainly noticed, you know, when I'm using my cell phone, if I happen to go into the network settings and dig a little bit, I can see my IPv6 address. So I know if I'm on mobile, I'm probably using v6. When I'm at home, I'm still using v4 on the wireless, but that that's, you know, a story for another time. Verizon Fios doesn't support v6. I, I don't want to get into that. But anyway, um, so with that, that in mind, is there a really big benefit beyond just the, the performance you mentioned to having a public endpoint that's v6 for all these devices? Yeah. I mean, enterprises, I think, organizations think, oh, I don't need to worry about IPv6. I'm not using it internally, but they they fail to realize how many devices out there are and that operating systems will will make they've got algorithms in them called happy eyeballs type techniques that make the ha eyeballs happy by trying to race v4 against v6 if v4 and v6 complete within a similar amount of time it uses the v6 connection and and tears down the v4 connection and so clients are checking response times of v4 and v6 if you've got an endpoint that or a service that's only using v4 then there's only one possible path that those people could could reach you but if you've got a, a service that offers both protocol connectivity clients can choose which whichever one is has the best performance so by using only ipv4 for public facing services you're limiting your performance to only one, which is, is increasingly becoming the less performant IP version. So you would want to make services or endpoints, offer them both, and then they can choose whichever one has the best performance. Right, because my mobile device, if it only has a V6 address, is going to have to hit that v4 endpoint going through some sort of NAT, some sort of tunneling. Mm -hmm. And that's probably going to give me lesser performance. Whereas if I can go directly stay on v6 the whole time, better performance for me, happier eyeballs, my eyeballs are happier for some reason. <laughs> yeah. <Yep. laughs> and then you know, that's, that's a compelling business use case, uh, business case for the C suite say, our customers will be happier, I don't have to get into all the technical bits and bytes about why just understand if we make this change, and it's not as big of a change as rehauling, re redoing our entire network, but make this change on our endpoints, now end users will get better performance out of our apps. And that could be more revenue. <laughs> yeah, in North America or Europe, performance improvement with V6 could be five to 10 milliseconds. In you know Central America, South America, Africa, many tens of milliseconds per round trip time faster with V6. And so if you think your web page and the loading of the objects on your page, maybe a hundred different connections, mm -hmm. now we're talking a second, at least a second faster or internationally could be four, five seconds faster. So many online.com retailers have metrics about if if our web page performs x amount faster we have this much more conversion rate of sales our website seems snappier 
our end users seem happier to browse and, and shop online, the speedier and quicker our web page loads and we have a, a better purchase rate for a second faster, there's a there's a return on investment there. Yeah, and a second doesn't sound like a lot, but but it really is. I mean, I will abandon sites that are too slow. And a second, does, again, it doesn't seem like a lot, but there is such a tangible feel to it when you're moving through a site that if it's not loading or it's waiting for a particular object that hasn't showed up yet, so you're staring at that white screen while that last object appears, abandonment, that's that's a real thing. So mm -hmm. you're you're making a good case here, Scott. Mm -hmm. Well, Scott, let's, let's drill into the cloud side of mm -hmm. things a bit. Uh, if I have uh, a VPC of of some sort is there in a technical advantage to addressing that with v6 there is particularly at the internet edge at the web tier you know you want to make that web tier accessible over v4 and v6 to make it able to be reached by you know the broadest internet population it, you know that broad internet reachability is one of the main tenants and characteristics of cloud public cloud infrastructure, you want them to be accessible. You want to, everyone you, in the world to reach your your page, your content, your shopping site. You're talking about the front door. You're talking the about, so, yeah, so that people can come in. So, so behind it doesn't necessarily need to be V6. You're not arguing there's necessarily big advantages there, but certainly that front door has got to be V6. Yeah, is it's not necessarily differentiating to have your database tier using V4 or V6, mm -hmm. but there could be a compelling reason to use it in the container infrastructure because of the number of containers you may be launching, and then you may the the compelling reason to deploy IPv6 deeper into your you know multi-tier web architectures or container architectures is to use addressing that doesn't overlap with your on-premises environments and avoids address overlaps or facilitates collaboration, community clouds, you know, avoid readdressing. And so that's the compelling reason, you know, there's operational benefits to using IPv6 in other parts of your infrastructure, management tier, out of band, control tier, you know, other tiers of your application, there could be benefits there, but they aren't necessarily performance because all of those tiers are very close together. There isn't, a, there shouldn't be a lot of latency there. Well, does there get to be an operational benefit where, you know, if we're moving towards V6, I guess retiring V4 is just part of the equation at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, at that web tier, that that load balancer will have a v4 vip and a v6 vip and they'll be registered in dns what goes on behind the scenes is invisible to the you know to the client so it could be completely v6 only inside of the you know past the front door there and the client will never notice um, so you could and you can run ipv6 only on things that are very modern and in and when we're talking cloud, that should be very modern software, very modern operating systems, very you know modern connectivity, and so very likely you aren't dealing with anything really you know late legacy there, other than 
maybe dependencies that the cloud service provider puts on you or limits your ability to do v6 only or forces you to have to have dual or have has to or forces you to have to run ipv4 on vpcs and vnets and stuff like that that gets into the the cloud providers itself and that's that i want to shift it shift the conversation into in that area because you know day two cloud that's ostensibly what we tend to look at and i know it's changed a lot over the last few years. What's supported internally and externally on the cloud providers? Can you give us uh, just kind of an idea of where things are on the public endpoint side when it comes to, you know, like the big three or four clouds that are out there? Yeah, I think all of them, you know, have a load balancer, have DDoS capabilities for V6, have the ability to create security groups and, you know, route between virtual network segments, and even do dynamic routing on the hybrid connectivity, either over a VPN or directly through a data center provider, 10 gig link or something like that. They have the ability to bring your own IPv6 address, many of them, mm. many of the big ones, you know, people tend to think about. You can then create an, an enterprise-wide IPv6 addressing plan and then not use provider assigned address space inside of your for, you know, cloud virtual networks, but rather use your own and have some control over that or have a consistent addressing model. But if you were limited and only had to use the provider assigned IPv6 addresses, all is for, it's not for not, at least you know you're using an address space that isn't going to overlap with anything, but it does provide a little bit of vendor lock in there when you're using their address space. It's not portable, uh, but you're, you're kind of locked in in the cloud anyway. Right. <laughs> um, but then now, you know, clouds, you know, infrastructure as a service, cloud service providers are providing the ability to do V6 only providing NAT 6.4, DNS 6.4 kind of translation services so that you can run a V6 only workload in their clouds. So they're progressing on that front. And then also now the cloud providers are getting the ability to, to run IPv6 in containerized, hosted containerized uh, infrastructure. I'd imagine that'd be really beneficial to be able to get directly down to the container without having to go through a bunch of intermediary hops. Because when I think about uh, one of the things you can do in Azure and AKS is you can create a big enough address space in IPv4 in your virtual network that every new container can get its own individual IP address for its the duration of its lifetime, and then that'll mm -hmm. get recycled through DHCP. But if you have enough churn, even DHCP with its leases can't necessarily keep up with the demand, and you're still restricted mm -hmm. <laughs> to that address space. If I could use IPv6 for it, I would never have to worry about reusing the same address for a new container. I just you know, throw it away after the container dies. Yeah, with DHCP, you might have to keep your lease time quite short because you end up with a scope exhaustion right. situation. So you keep your lease time really short. With IPv6, you've got a slash 64. <laughs> How would that change your thinking about your, your lease time on your scope? You're not going to have a scope exhaustion. And why don't you set your lease time to be... Not not even a day. How about a week? How about a month? Right. Of your lease time could increase because you're not in risk of a scope exhaustion situation. 
Right. And now I'm using that. Now there's less translation happening between, uh, you know, the service that's being offered and how it's being consumed by the client because I don't have to have this internal, separate internal address space that I'm maintaining inside my virtual Kubernetes network because now that's just using the network it's sitting on instead of having that additional layer. Yeah. Also, if you're a PaaS or a SaaS provider and you're spinning up logical instances of your software for a customer and you need to have them all isolated from each other, now you're running out of private over non-overlapping 10 space to create verfs, if you will, as a <laughs> networking <laughs> nerd term, you know, you're creating virtual you know, routing domains. Mm-hmm. Now you could have all of them be separated and each have their own unique address space. Also, when you're doing things like infrastructure as code, you're spinning up an environment, you're running it for a while, then you're deleting it, and then you go on to the next one. And so you have so much IPv6 address space, you wouldn't have to worry about going back and reclaiming old ones. Just pull a new one off the top of the stack, deploy it, burn it, move on, next environment, boom, pop one (laughs) off the stack. (laughs) That's so counterintuitive. Kill it, delete it, move on. Don't worry about going back and reclaiming. By the time you go all the way around, you know, the loop, and now it's time to reclaim. I mean, I, yeah, I wouldn't worry about keeping track of, I mean, you need to like avoid overlaps of, you know, networks as you're spinning up virtual environments, but things are very ephemeral in the cloud. Mm. They don't have a long lifespan. And so you don't need to hold on to that address or the plentifulness of the, global IPv6 address space allows you to not care so much about, you know, am I going to run out or just build things, build it new. But with IPv4, we have these very sophisticated algorithms to avoid overlaps, give a very small (laughs) amount of address space that doesn't, oh, and then if it expands, then what do I do? Well, that's what I meant by counterintuitive, coming from the V4 world where you track everything very diligently and carefully mm-hmm. to think about, I'm just going to take the next address off the top of the stack, use it, burn it, throw it away. Who cares? It doesn't matter because you've got so many. It would take mm-hmm. you years, decades longer to actually burn through all of the address space that you have in there, even if you were using them aggressively. Yeah, it's kind of just you have to change your thinking and think about addresses as yeah, not a not a scarce commodity that has to be. I mean, we don't want to grossly waste them in a. You could definitely waste them and then run into problems again. But I think using just normal IPv6 address conventions, hmm. you have plenty, and you don't have to worry about reclamation or saving or. So re- realistically, looking at my internal network, my internal cloud network, Scott, am I? going to be able to go v6 only or are there limitations or just practical considerations where yeah my hosts that are sitting on that internal side probably need to be dual stacked yeah i think you could start there and and try it the one thing about dual stack that it hides ipv4 dependencies when systems have their opportunity to choose both you may realize there might be part of your CI/CD pipeline or administrative functions or management access to things still use still relying on IPv4 or a fetch 
of something to your registry or your, you know, your storage might still be using IPv4. And then it's only when you go to turn off IPv4, you realize, oh man, it's still using IPv4. Gosh. Mm. You know, and so I think it's it behooves ourselves to try to do things v6 only and understand and then that very uh, that that points out exactly where we have v4 dependencies and so you want to know where those are as you strive for the future and you want to know those sooner rather than later and just keep track of them you don't have to solve all of them today but you need to know they're there and so Yes, dual stack is probably what you could realistically achieve today, mm -hmm. but running dual masks V4 dependencies that you may run into problems with later. So you might as well know where you stand today and then chart a course for the future. But the reality is you may end up running dual because you do have V4 dependencies. And, and if it's IaaS, that's fair enough. Those hosts are more or less under our control what about PaaS? If I'm using some sort of a PaaS service, how are the cloud providers doing with that? Is that a, a scenario where I have pretty good luck with V6 or dual stack? Where, where am I going to be at? Yeah, because they may have scriptable infrastructure that mm. they that may be brittle, that they don't want to touch. It works. Don't touch it. It's going to mess <laughs> up our client. And they, that could be using just a lot of E4 still, even though they may be running on another cloud environment that does support IPv6, the way their scripts are written, they're still just using v4. So you may be limited, even if their underlying infrastructure has v6 capabilities, they're still thinking of doing things in a v4 only way. So, so PaaS actually could be a driver for dual stack. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's something yeah. in order to connect to everything I need to connect to. It could very well be I got to maintain V4 for some amount of time going forward until yeah. the various providers begin converting those services over. Yeah. And you know it'll happen. And you see their announcements, all the major cloud providers every six months coming out with new IPv6 features and continuing to expand it into different regions, into different you know, zones into different services, you know, and, and services just kind of pick up IPv6 here and there a little bit over time, but mm. all of them are working on developing new features. Yeah, I was going to say that the main driver behind a lot of what gets developed on all these past services is what customers are asking for. When they build out their roadmap for, you know, the next cycle, whatever it's going to be, the next sprint, they're going to focus on stuff that is in the backlog that customers are, you know, demanding and any bug fixes and security stuff. If no one's asking or demanding for IPv6 to be integrated into the solution, that's that's always going to take a backseat to, I've got 10 customers that are screaming at me that they need this new button on the yeah. app. And, they're, and if we build that button, we get a ton of workloads to our cloud. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But I, I, I think you're right. There is just an overall a renewed emphasis and that has something to do with the fact that if one cloud does it, then the other clouds have to follow suit just to keep up with the Joneses, as it were. Yeah. And I think, you know, developers are starting to, to realize that they're so confined, you know, with V4, they, they want the flexibility, they want the ease of operational model, they want the, the addressing model that lends itself well to you know, scriptable infrastructure as code. 
to not having to think about it, Scott. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They are sick of being yelled at. Every time they need to launch a new service, they go to the IPAM person in the enterprise and say, <laughs> can I have another slash 16 of 10 space? And the, and the IPAM person is like, you're killing me, dude. <laughs> you know, like, I don't, I don't have the slash 16 of 10 space. I can just give you for your next cloudy project. Uh, and so they're tired of being told no. And so if they just get, you know, a big block of E6 from the network team, then they can just go ham <laughs> in their cloud. <laughs> and then they don't have to come back and, and beg the IPAM overlords <laughs> for every time they want to launch a new cloud. And then, you know, every time you need address space, you know, that's a, that's a stop. That's a hard stop in your uh, infrastructure as code, right? That's a, oop, I got to enter a ticket. I got to make a request. <laughs> and if you could just run a script right through that, it improves your workflow, improves your uh, ability to launch faster. Yeah, it's... Uh... With all the things that have been automated, sometimes I, the IPAM is the last one, or there'll still be a gatekeeper who has to, you know, bless the request when it comes in. Oh, I got to ask the firewall admin for a favor. <laughs> or, oh, yeah, it gets to this point, oop, then it stops. Now I have to enter a ticket to another team, to which has a person that does something. And then once I get that, then I can put that value into my script and then run it. <laughs> right. You, you mentioned firewalls a second ago, and that reminded me of something that popped into my brain when we were talking earlier about the idea of I'm running a SaaS and I have multiple tenants. And if I'm using an IPv6 address space, now I can have a dedicated block per tenant and that can assist me with all kinds of security things as well because I can lock things down by a, a range of IPv6 addresses. I didn't have that luxury when it came to v4. Yeah, because there's just so many overlaps. So now you have uniqueness. So you have probably greater situational awareness. You don't have to keep track of, oh, overlapping. You know, this is, you know, 10.11.1 is this customer, is this device, and 10.111 is this customer, that device. No, they each have their own V6 address that's unique. So even in your databases, as a as a PaaS or a managed service provider running in the cloud, or you've created a, a SaaS platform in the cloud, now none of the customers overlap. And so your database has a unique address field for every one of these you know, uh, customer workloads. Yeah, that definitely has some potential. <laughs> Mm -hmm. and, and if your service blows up overnight, you're not going to have to worry about running out of tenant space because you've chosen this much smaller address space to work with. You've The sky's the limit, more or less, unless you become something like Google, in which case you have other problems because now you're Google. <laughs> <laughs> yes. to, to what degree does working in one of the government or sovereign clouds impact your IPv6 options? Because I know those are sometimes the slowest to get the newest features. Yeah, it, it boggles my mind that I think these clouds or these government type clouds think having less features is more secure. <laughs> less security features, less V6 features, less. Yeah, it's getting better getting the V6 features to those government clouds. There's there's two things here. One is, you know, feature parity between what runs in a commercial cloud region or a government cloud region. 
The others is many connectivity from the government entity to that government cloud infrastructure must pass through a trusted internet connection. And so the V6 connectivity from them to their own cloud may have added latency being backhauled through a, a special you know, trusted internet connection, a TICAP, MTIPS, these other kind of controlled internet egress points for the government organizations. So that, so the connectivity between the government organization and their gov cloud region is one aspect. The other is that operating inside of that gov cloud region may have not as current features as what may be available in a commercial region. Okay. Okay. So, you know, if you're, if you are working in that space, just be aware that things might be lagging a little bit behind. Mm -hmm. I think we've done a, a decent job of covering what the sort of the business and technical benefits of IPv6 are, but I want to check in with you and see if, is there anything we didn't ask about? Is there anything we missed that's a, a big benefit or bonus that you see uh, on the business or technical side? Performance uh, improvements with V6 or giving clients the option of choosing whichever protocol may be more performant from their perspective uh, is the biggest benefit. Then, you know, next would be the operational improvements, the ease of administration, ease of use, ease of management, because now we have an address space that's plentiful that doesn't overlap and maybe we could run only a single protocol and reduce our operational costs that way. That's the second one. The third might be just an address space that, yeah, facilitates scripting, you know, mm. or, or that those concepts of making things ephemeral or short-lived. Those are probably the biggest benefits. So Scott, let's say I'm sold and uh, I'm in an IPv4 environment entirely now. That's what I've got. Uh, that's what's in the cloud. That's what's on my on-prem. Get me started here. I don't want to break anything. I don't want a ton of downtime. How do I, I'm not saying write the plan for me, but give me the tips on how do I get that plan written, if you will, so that I can adopt V6 and have it be minimally disruptive. Let's, let's keep cloud in mind here, Scott. Yeah. Oh, oh, I thought of a, the, the A third set of potential improvements are once you get V6 rolled out or once you get comfortable with deploying IPv6, then you start to think about addressing differently for the future. So let's say you have <laughs> you want to create workloads that are zero trust or you're doing things with software-defined perimeter where a client goes, authenticates that software-defined perimeter, unlocks a, a SDP gateway, unlocks access for that particular user at that address, access to that particular application. And now you're, you're tracking the client address. And that client address could be V4 or V6, where before you were only looking at the client V4 address and that was going through multiple NATs. So how do you, do you really have assurances that the client was coming to you from a legitimate address over V4? Because you don't really see the client address unless it's, <laughs> no. you, you track based on cookies and things like that, but your ability to track based on the client address is less with V4. With V6, you have more assurance that that client is coming from the real address that the client has on their actual interface because it didn't get translated. 
then also we can change the way we think about services. So the services, we tend to think of a service has a single V4 address and we put it into DNS. A modern concept is to have addressless servers. So we tend to have one server or one service has one address and it's well known in DNS. What if your service could have a different unique client identifier for every client? So I got a thousand clients accessing a web server. The web server is listening on a thousand different addresses, one address per client. And when the client disconnects, we throw that address away and add another one. So the third like phase, once you get your feet wet with IPv6, then the future is now I burn addresses per connection. And I do that based on zero trust, or I'm burning it in my service mesh, or I'm burning addresses in my container infrastructure. And the addresses are ephemeral, and things just come and go, and then it reduces my attack surface. No one can do a DDoS attack to my service because five seconds from now, the address is going to be different. Well, and you're, you're talking about thousands of addresses getting burned in the course of a 24-hour period, Scott, or millions, depending on if yes. it's a busy service or not. But yes. there's so much address space, you're saying such an approach is realistic. Yes. So you start to, once once you get your feet wet with with dual stack and v6 only, now you start to think about how what else can I do with IPv6? How can I use IPv6 addressing creatively to give me maybe a security benefit or mm-hmm. reduce my attack surface? Or like I like I say, there can be no advanced persistence threat without persistence. And if things don't <laughs> exist very long, then how could they be attacked? So that's like the future. <laughs> what you might unlock is the potential with IPv6 down the road that you couldn't do today. So let me guide you back to this adoption question then. Uh, I've got V4. I want to get started with V6. I can't break anything, Scott. How can I <laughs> gently turn things on and start moving with IPv6? Yeah, I think you could look at your you know, dev test environments and say, let me look at the, the scripts that build up those environments, build up those halls and walls and networks and you know VPCs and VNets and subnets and route tables. And let me look at that. And let me look at that code and say, well, how difficult would it be just to add a few commands and then turn up the environment with dual stack and then start to make building dual stack just part of our normal dev test, build up, tear down, you know, pipeline workflow. And that would be the place to test it and get your scripts just right. And then once you feel confident with your with your scripts, then you could just make that just a standard set of configurations that you roll out all your environments with. And then you never have to think about it again. <laughs> it's just built into the script just runs all the time. And I have confidence that it's going to build the right, you know, the right environments. And I'm going to have dual stack in all of these environments. Then, then you might think, oh, now I'm going to have a, a second dev environment. And maybe then I try to turn off V4 or see where I can run V6 only and then compare and then look for potential to divest myself of V4 completely. 
Well, there was one one thing implied in what you were saying there, Scott, and that is that the underlying network infrastructure has been set up with routing tables and so on to carry that V6 address space. Mm -hmm. So is, is am I right there? There's a there's a preliminary conversation, something that's happened on the network engineering side to facilitate this. We're assuming that that's good to go, and then we can mm -hmm. start lighting it up on the host, right? Yes. Also, just because a workload has a V4 address and a V6 address doesn't mean it has to use the V4 address. If you only have a quad A record for an endpoint or a service to service connectivity, if it only has a V4 address it can, or V6 address, a quad A record in DNS, it can only make a connection over V6. So even though you may have a service provider that enforces all workloads to have both protocols, you could start to remove v4 addresses out of dns as a way to then force connectivity between software components to use v6 even if well, the un underlying infrastructure is dual right we're assuming that the inbound connections are, will have been resolved by dns oh mm -hmm. i only got a quad a record i'm going to make that inbound connection on v6 mm -hmm. Uh, doesn't mean that the host that's dual still dual stacked. He doesn't care if he's got an A or a quad A. He can make his outbounds on V4. But uh, mm -hmm. but yeah, we can start uh, reducing those DNS records one at a time mm -hmm. and uh, see what breaks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's the place you want to test it in a safe environment, you know. Yeah. And and maybe even before dev, you just want a playground. You want a sandbox. You just turn. You know, let me just learn <laughs> what are the API calls. What are the, you know, what's the Python I'm going to run? What's the Ansible? What's the Terraform? What's the CloudFormation? You know, what does the script look like to build this stuff up, Dual? You know, that's know. maybe the starting point there. Some right. of the shops I've supported, I don't know how safe the dev environments would be. <laughs> so if anything goes down, I'm losing time. Come on, man, bring it back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, those those environments end up being a bit, Prody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wait, I thought this was dev. Why, why are customers hitting this environment? <laughs> oh, yeah, that too. I guess that, that was my green and my blue green. <laughs> Oops. I think that the nice thing about the, you know, if, if you're all in on the cloud right now or, or using it heavily, you probably have a lot of this stuff scripted out or sitting in infrastructure as code. So spinning up a sandbox environment is not that big of a lift. And all you have to do is start updating, like you said, your infrastructure as code to support IPv6 and, and see what happens in that sandbox. So you really, the, the cloud can be your playground um, and you can figure out what what is possible uh, until it gets greenlit for your development and then production. Yeah, get comfortable with spinning things up and then killing it, deleting it, starting over, spinning it up, making sure, getting building confidence that when it spins up and gets built, that infrastructure is is getting all built up you know, with V4 and V6. And then later down the road, then start to taper away V4 and see where your V4 dependencies lie. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, helping update my skills since uh, Server 2000, because it seems like things have changed <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> Can you summarize just a few key takeaways for the audience, Scott? Yeah, I'd say... There's more IPv6 on the internet than maybe you thought, you know, five years ago, and it's continued to grow. And so we need to recognize that even if maybe we have a plentiful supply of V4 address space, the rest of the world doesn't. And our customers are 
partners, our suppliers, our vendors, they're struggling with address space. So if we're the bigger person, we take the high road, we implement IPv6 and make our, our services accessible over IPv6, we give our customers, partners, suppliers, vendors, the choice on which protocol they want to connect to us that makes their end user experience faster. And also the cloud service providers have been slowly working, you know, for the last, I guess, eight years to add IPv6 features. And so you might not have even realized how much IPv6 capability your current cloud provider offers you because it's just been slow and steady, just adding more features. And so educate yourself on the latest V6 features. And I bet you'd be surprised. You'd be like, wow, there's a lot here that I can do with IPv6. And then once you have kind of understand that IPv6 is used on the internet by your customers, understand the performance improvements, make that business case to your executives, make it a legitimate IT project, and then start to build out that sandbox, that dev test environment with IPv6, and then see if you can turn off v4 anywhere, understand where your v4 dependencies are. There's still going to be dependencies in the near term, so you may still have to run dual stack and different parts of your infrastructure. Over time, you might get to a point where you can run v6 only and then uh, enjoy some operational uh, OPEX cost improvements or operational improvements by only having to run a single protocol. And then once you gain that, that confidence, then the future unlocks and the potential of using addresses in some really creative ways may be the next step. <laughs> awesome. Well, you have uh, given us a whole bunch of links that people can check to see what's supported on their public clouds of choice. So we'll definitely include that information in the show notes. If folks want to know more about you and your world, uh, where should they look? Where can they follow you? At Scott Hogue and I write for the Infoblox IPv6 Center of Excellence. And I've written a lot for networkworld.com out there. But yeah, and then listen to us on the IPv6 Buzz podcast. Awesome. Scott Hogue, thank you so much for appearing as a guest today on Day 2 Cloud. And hey, virtual high fives to you out there for tuning in. If you have suggestions for future shows, we would love to hear them. You can hit either of us up on Twitter at Day 2 Cloud Show. Or if you're not a Twitter person, I get it. You can fill out the form on my fancy website. It is nedinthecloud.com. Hey, um, so Packet Pushers has this newsletter thing. It gets published weekly. It's called Human Infrastructure Magazine, and it's loaded with the best stuff that we found on the internet, plus our own feature articles, stuff that we write. It's free, and it does not suck. So if you want to get the next issue, check out packetpushers.net slash newsletter. Until next time, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.